Hi, my name is Dr. Rongan Chatterjee, medical doctor, author of The Four Pillar Plan and BBC television presenter. I believe that all of us have the ability to feel better than we currently do, but getting healthy has become far too complicated. With this podcast, I aim to simplify it. I'm going to be having conversations with some of the most interesting and exciting people both within as well as outside the health space to hopefully inspire you as well as empower you with simple tips that you can put into practice immediately to transform the way that you feel. I believe that when we are healthier, we are happier because when we feel better, we live more. So it's a huge pleasure for the guest I've got on the podcast today. It's someone who's a very, very close personal friend and almost like a member of my family. Somebody who I have actually known since childhood, uh, but we reconnected over the past few years, having lost touch after university. It's somebody who is a at-the-coalface NHS GP. It's somebody who is an advocate for lifestyle medicine, very much uh, like myself, as someone who has a, has a keen interest in health communication, it is Dr. Ian Panja. Ian, welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Rongan. It's great to be here, honestly. It's, um, you know, I can't believe this. It's, this is the stuff of dreams, you know, in a room with someone who's effectively a family member talking about stuff that we're both passionate about. Top stuff. Yeah, it's superb. And uh, Ian, one of the things I wanted to try and tackle today is... The term lifestyle medicine is gaining in popularity. It's, it's really getting some traction out there, you know, on social media, but also within the profession. And I will come later to the course that we have, have created together recently. Um, we'll come to that later on in the conversation. But, you know, why do you think lifestyle medicine is really striking a chord with people in 2018? That's, that's a really good question. And I think lifestyle medicine generally, I think it'd be, it'd be good to go back a few years to 1989, which is when I think in the modern era in medicine, lifestyle medicine was first coined. It was by a guy called James Ripp, who is a cardiologist who was educated at Harvard and actually runs a lifestyle medicine institute in Florida. And Really, that was the birth of modern lifestyle medicine. But but one of the problems was that it was seen as a Cinderella specialty in, in many ways. And actually, the uptake of lifestyle medicine has been quite weak. It's not seen as a specialty in itself, not like the big specialties like surgery or cardiology or gynecology. Um, but what's happened in recent years and what's happening now in 2018 is I think that clinicians, doctors, nurses, pharmacists, uh, all across the board are realising that the kind of medicine that we practice doesn't always work and it doesn't always get our patients better. What we're very good at doing in medicine is downstream stuff. We're good at replacing hips, putting in joint injections, um, giving people life-saving treatments. What we've not been good at doing historically is keeping people well. Um, and and that is really what lifestyle medicine's about. It's, it's a sort of a, a 360-degree approach, looking at someone's health, looking at etiological factors. Um, and I think that's something that's been forgotten largely in modern medicine. Yeah, I, I would agree with that, no, no doubt. Um, and has society changed? Is that why lifestyle medicine is taking hold now as a term, as a movement? Is it purely because of interest or is it actually because of simple necessity? I think it's both. Um, and, and there is 
something about the planet changing. So one of the conversations I have a lot with patients in the consulting room is about, this is one of many things, but about gut flora, for example, and how our parents' generation um, had better gut flora than we did in terms of diversity of their microbiome and how we are likely to have better gut flora than our children's generation. Now that is just one thing that has changed societally which has an impact on our internal health. So our grandparents generation for example um, they were much more likely to contract infectious diseases like tuberculosis um, or malaria. Those things actually we, we've, we've got on top of largely and there's been a shift in, in the type of diseases that we see. We see a lot more non communicable disease and this is something that arises from environmental factors and also what your constitution is like in terms of your immune system and other factors and all the things that are at play you know your hormones and your um, immune system your skeletal system your cardiovascular system and how they interact so I now see things in 15 and 16 year olds that I only ever used to see 20 years ago in a 70 or a 75 year old yeah. um, joint pains, migraines, bloating after meals, these non-communicable symptoms. And I think it's it's wrong for us as a profession to think that these things just happen. There are etiological reasons. And if you're a good detective and you're, uh, if you like, a nosy sort of doctor and you, you, you actually, which is what you did in your programme, you followed people around. So you've got a really a brilliant kind of insight into their life um, you will often find factors that are really easy to modify that have yeah. massive effects on how they feel on their symptoms and that and that's what this is about yeah it, it's it's interesting you say detective I, I i think more and more that my job is you know a health detective with my patients it's 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 yes it's hearing what those symptoms are but you know, more and more, I'm not trying to label those symptoms like maybe I was 10 years ago, um, you know, like a collection of symptoms. I'm not trying to label, oh, does that fit the criteria for depression or not? You know, for me, and I know for you, it's always been, it's always been about, you know, what's going on there? What is going on in that person's life that is leading to those symptoms? And that, I think, is a fundamental uh, shift in where medicine has to actually go now because I think we're becoming redundant actually in some of the things that we are doing. You know, we are doing a very good job with many acute diseases, but I think many of us would, would recognise we're not quite as good with these kind of vague symptoms, the, these chronic symptoms. Um, and we talk a lot about medically unexplained symptoms. I remember being at a GP uh, course maybe 10 years ago I, I can't remember when it was, but it actually wasn't as a GP. It was just as a, as a junior doctor, but saying that I think 60% of what will come through the, the, the door is medically unexplained. I thought, well, you know, I didn't think much of it at the time. I thought, okay, yeah, sure. But I've realized more and more, particularly over the last years, as I've studied etiology more than I ever have done in my career, I've realized that often you can determine a cause and that that normally is a cause that we can look at and modify. And I don't think we're taught that much at medical school about that. I think that's because because things are changing. And I think that, you know, yes, society is changing. You, you mentioned it's, it's, it's pretty harrowing, the thought of that, that actually our microbiomes are going to be worse than our parents and actually our children's are going to be worse than ours. That's, 
it's not a, not a pleasant thought, is it? No, that's right. And, and, and I think you, you've hit the nail on the head. I mean, <clears throat> one of the things that we're very good at in medicine is is managing patients. So asthma is a really uh, interesting one for me. There, there's a very protocol-driven way of managing asthma, and most doctors and nurses are, are good at that. Um, but the thinking in terms of what's driving asthma, I recently saw a patient of mine who is same age as me, 44, about to become 45, suddenly developed asthma out of the blue. No one in his family has it. He's never smoked cigarettes and he works in an office environment. What the heck is going on there? So he'd seen a couple of my colleagues and it turned out, I mean, I was asking questions about his diet, his lifestyle. It turned out that he works from home more now instead of going to the office and he's got a real damp problem in two of his rooms. So he got rid of the damp and his asthma is effectively gone. So that that's an example. I'm not saying I'm some sort of genius, but that's just an example of asking the question and being inquisitive, thinking about all the things that lead to symptoms. But that's just such a simple thing, Ian, isn't it? Such mm. a but but for people listening who maybe are not medical, or even if you are medical, mm. I think it's really important to, to understand that often we're not Often we're not trained to look for those things, but even if we are, what tends to happen once you start practicing medicine, you know, rather than the, the teachings of medicine, the actual practice of medicine often tends to be, oh, you now you've got the diagnosis of asthma. This is the treatment protocol, you know, and we've got a beautiful stepwise progression of how to treat these people and manage their symptoms, and that's the key, isn't it? Manage their symptoms, and we can do that very well, but often. We're not looking at, at some of these etiological causes. And in some cases, it's pretty straightforward once you start digging around, right? Absolutely, absolutely. And, 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 and it's, you know, moving, moving on to, you know, the, the course that you and I have developed, you know, as you know, we've come up with this framework that makes it very easy for a busy, battered NHS GP like myself to actually think in that way, you know, thinking about these factors that, that lead to symptoms. I, I think that's the thing about general practice as well. And I'm, you know, I'm a... You know what I'm like. I'm I'm such a fan of 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 the job in in the sense that I think it's a very important role. And and I keep saying this: we we save lives in slow motion in general practice. We haven't got the big stories that our surgical colleagues have. But it's really important to catch these little clues early on to stop someone becoming more ill later on. And that ties in with investing in true preventive medicine. This is one of the reasons why the NHS struggles so much. You know, you can put in accountable care organisations, integrating care in terms of having care at home and all of that stuff. Yes, that's great. But what about upstream? What about this flood of, of, of non-communicable disease that is coming our way? We need a different approach. And I think you and I felt the power of that because we live it um, and, and, and it works. You, you mentioned the, the prescribing lifestyle medicine course that we've created together that, you know, we you know, d d we were delighted when the Royal College of GPs gave it their official accreditation. So now we, we've, you know, for, for one of the very first times, got a prescribing lifestyle medicine course where doctors and other healthcare professionals, but primarily we, we've focused this on doctors because I know that we felt that there, there are other healthcare professionals who, who are getting some of this training. Not all of them, but some of them are. Um and our goal was to, to, by getting that accreditation, was to give it that real credibility piece that actually this is a speciality in its own right. This needs to be taught at a high level. And I think getting that accreditation has really helped. And what you just said about um, saving lives in slow motion reminds me of one of the, 
one of the, one of the cases you spoke about on the course, which we ran for the first time in January. Uh, and, and I know because I spoke to a lot of the doctors afterwards, and this really resonated with them, is that people come in with those vague symptoms in their 20s. We don't know how to manage them. If we're lucky, we might suppress their symptoms with medications. But those, but those symptoms actually are a sign of something not working well in the body, which if left untreated and unmanaged, will lead to a disease five, ten years down the line. And I think that's a very key point we need to get across to the public, but also to healthcare professionals. Absolutely. And th- there is a lot of science around this. And I think this is where um, that's almost the the penny dropping moment in the course, where it's not just about these people that come in and, and are often labelled as heart sinks. It's the fact that actually there are, there are very early hallmark signs that their body is in a state of dysfunction, it's going wrong and they are inflamed or they are, uh, their endocrine system's not working properly, whatever it is, you know, and, and they, as you know, more than anyone in your book highlights beautifully, these often present as things like insomnia or joint pains or digestive issues. Or a headache. Or, or a headache, yeah. exactly. These sort of soft symptoms that, you know, even a patient-centred GP would often take a pharmaceutical approach eventually. Um, and, and I think that's the thing. We're very good at patient-centeredness, but not in the molecular sense. We do not get training on that. And actually, there is so much science and there is evidence behind it. And once you demonstrate it with these cases, um, I, I think I think it's very powerful. The other thing is I have a lot of colleagues who are doctors themselves and they understand it when they get ill themselves. They realise there's this big disconnect between the medical model. And when I say medical model, I mean, you know, biopsychosocial model which is which is what we're taught isn't it at med school between that and what we're doing which is really a much more 360 degree approach there's nothing clever about this is there it's just it's very simple in many ways it's just we're just it's just a different way of thinking and the way that um you know the, the way that I put it is that it's like a piece of software that you can install if you're already a clinician because these guys you know everyone you know all these colleagues of ours are practicing medicine they just need this different way of looking at things and it can make massive change i mean one of the other things i would say that you know i know you know is the feedback we've had has just been astonishing i mean i've i've almost been moved to tears by the kind of things that people have written because i think a hundred percent of people would recommend it to a colleague and you know i don't know any other course that has that level no, of feedback. It, it, I, I would agree and it's it's just been incredible um to see those feedback forms come in and because you know you, you when we set out to create this you, know, you never know how it'll be received you you know you try your best and it's you know i think we probably both underestimated how much work it is to create a brand yeah. new course <laughs> a brand new framework for people from scratch because and that's the key here this wasn't a course that was just you know five or six it wasn't a conference where five or six people came up to to talk about their passion there was a very clear narrative throughout the day, the goal being at the end of this one-day masterclass, you know, we want all the clinicians there to have a new, you know, a bigger toolbox to supplement their existing toolbox, which is very good, so that they can apply on Monday morning and crucially within the confines of a 10-minute NHS consultation. And that leads me to, to my next question, Ian, which is, you are, you know, in the trenches there as a GP partner with all the pressures and stresses and workload that that entails, trying to apply a, a, a model uh, of medicine and patient care 
that can often take a lot of time. Is there a role for lifestyle medicine in the National Health Service? 100% there is, because um, two of my colleagues from my practice actually came to the course, and not a day goes by when one of them doesn't stop me in the corridor and say, and says, guess what, I've used, I've used the framework again and it's worked and this has happened. And they're so enthused. I mean, there, there, are, there are so many wins here. Firstly, for the patient, you're actually, the, the difference in lifestyle medicine is that the patient is very much a partner. They have to be invested in what the plan is for them because, and usually they are because they're desperate and they, they've come several times with symptoms that haven't gone away. So they're willing to try things that you're going to suggest and, and that means that they're invested and they're more likely to be compliant. Secondly, for the practitioner, rather than people coming back after six weeks going, oh, you know what, doctor, it's just um, my joints are still aching or I still feel really tired all the time or it hasn't got better. I've been to the gastroenterologist and he says everything's normal, but I still feel awful. Well, guess what? They come back after six weeks and they say, I've just come back to say thank you. You've completely changed my life. And that is just such a wonderful feeling for whatever kind of practitioner you are, whether you're a GP or a hospital doctor or a nurse or a physio or a pharmacist. It's just a wonderful feeling. And, and in general practice particularly, because we are at the coalface, that, that doesn't happen very often. Yes, of course, at Christmas we get lots of Christmas cards and thank you presents for support that we've given patients but actually getting someone better from a non-communicable symptom is a real challenge and I think any colleague of mine listening will, will identify with that that there are sometimes you you go in in the morning thinking oh you know a certain patient's coming in and you see their name on the list and you think what am I going to do now you know I'm stuck mm. and actually the beauty of this framework is that not only does it work, you can repeat it every time they come. So it, 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 it's repeatable and yeah. it's scalable and it works better each time you apply it. And, we, and we, we, we've been blown away, haven't we, by the feedback because, you know, we've created this framework, we've created this lifestyle prescription and, and, you know, and how one feeds into the other. And, you know, I remember at our, at our meetings just sitting around, you know, trying to come up with it, trying to tease it out it's just such a wonderful feeling now to know that there are nearly 200 clinicians uh, around the country. And actually some people came from outside the UK using this framework and prescription tool that we have put together, which they're able to do many times within 10 minutes, which is giving them a lot of satisfaction. Now, I remember that the week after the course, um, we got that bit of feedback, didn't we, which we shared amongst the team by... Uh, one GP said this is the first Monday morning, uh, sorry, the first Monday that I've been, yeah. a, a, as a GP, that I've not felt burnt out yeah. at the end of the day. Yeah, I've I, left energised. I've left energised. Yeah. And, and this is a key point, you know, burnout and stress, as you well know, is a big issue. And I know full yeah. well is a huge issue in, in, in medicine per se, but in modern day general practice. Um, I think you're absolutely right. We are at a a crunch point at the moment in medicine for several reasons and if you look at where we are in terms of the profession itself and in terms of lifestyle medicine there's a real opportunity here for one to affect the other um, one of the big issues in the NHS is, is not is not actually training up more doctors it's not actually getting more medical students through it's about retaining them and retaining their professional satisfaction you go and talk to any level of doctor now in the NHS and morale is low we know this because of um, the press and we know this because we have lots of friends who work in medicine. And 
That is a shame. There are, I'm not going to get political because there are lots of reasons, including underfunding, that we that we know about. But one of the things that actually this this model helps with is 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 it actually helps you. You can use all of these tools on yourself. And I think we've seen that, you know, that the power of this is not just on your patients. You can apply these principles to yourself. And that whole adage of, you know, happy patients, happy doctors, it it works. It goes round in, in that kind of circle. So I think I think this is a great time to really educate people around the benefits of thinking slightly differently, empowering you know, doctors and other clinicians to to use this model, and that will empower patients to use it on themselves. And a little bit like your book, word just spreads. You know, I've I, a lot of my patients have bought your four pillar plan, and um, it's amazing. They, one one of them came in the other day and hadn't even read it, but just because he had it in his bag, he sort of whopped it out and showed it to me. He already sort of feels better. It's almost like he knows he's got to make some changes to his lifestyle, and this book is going to help him. And in the same way, practitioners. Can, can can make enormous amounts of change with with very small tweaks you know a little bit like the chap with with mold in his in his bathroom and his yeah. asthma going away you know that's the it's not it's not complicated but it's beautifully simple yeah. and it works it is beautifully simple um one thing i would say just i think it's really important to say is the word lifestyle medicine can potentially come across as being a bit soft Okay. Absolutely. So yeah, we all know about eating better and moving more and stuff, you know. Uh, but I think it's as you were saying right at the start, there there is a lot of really quite complex science now demonstrating what these various lifestyle interventions do. But the take home can be quite simple. But it is much more than just eat better and move more. There is some real complex science there, you know. We can talk about how these interventions change our genetic expression, uh, how changes our hormone profiles, changes levels of inflammation, you know, very quickly in the body. The sort of things that we would have thought only we could do with drugs in the past, we now realise we can do with lifestyle. And, you know, as I've said to you many times, Ian, you know, I'm not, I'm not sure that lifestyle medicine necessarily is the best term in the world because I think it can be misconstrued as to being, oh, this is a public health issue. You know, there is a public health issue, isn't there, about encouraging the population to be healthier. But these are tools that actually can help doctors get their patients better. Absolutely right. And I think, I think you've made a great point there. We are going from complex science at one end to the patient in front of us at the other. And I'd, I'd, I'd argue that in generalism... There is no other discipline where that is more important. You've got undifferentiated illness that's presenting to you, and you've suddenly got to get this hat on to work out what's going on in this in this in this person's body. So the other thing that you picked up on just there about the science being complex is that the science is out there. And when I used to work at the BBC in the radio science department, we used to get all sorts of articles and papers. and um, Say, for example, I remember one about women in South America who paint their babies with vaginal paint. Again, microbiota and going through the birth canal and how important that is. Um, and there would be articles on plastics as endocrine disruptors. Now, now, this is all out in the public domain and interested members of the public and interested clinicians will read these articles. I think the difficulty is... 
applying all of those things and putting it together when it comes to the person in front of you and coming up with something that is achievable for them and is simple enough that is going to have a big enough effect on their health. That is pretty complex. And as you said, normally that's the kind of thing that you would ask of from a drug. You know, a drug company would be delighted if they could get that result. And actually what we're seeing is just by thinking a little bit differently, engaging the patient, involving them in what's happening, you can get enormously beneficial results that sometimes are miraculous. And some of the testimonials that that you see... Um, which I think, you know, the cynical medic would say, well, you know, where's the proof? They could have just got better anyway. Well, actually, no, they've been struggling for 20 years and now they're better because of these simple lifestyle interventions. And I think you're right. Lifestyle medicine does sound soft because because of the reasons that we said it doesn't exist in old school textbooks. You know, it's not haematology. It's not general surgery. It's fluffy lifestyle medicine but actually it's not fluffy it's anything but that it's deeply scientific and it's very very powerful and I would say that every clinician going through their training needs to know something about it Um, and what really excites me but you know in in a way I have some trepidation about it is how many medical students are interested in this because they're they're living through this generation um, where the patterns of, of, of what they do in their life, the patterns of health and illness, their cultural consumption, their consumption of food and all the things that they do nowadays are slightly different to 20 years ago and very different to 40 years ago. Um, and I think it's very exciting. You make the point, saying that every clinician going through their training should have some 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 training given to this area. And... You know, we were so delighted, weren't we, that actually on our prescribing lifestyle medicine course, we had a whole variety of different people coming. Yes, we had a lot of GPs, but we also had psychiatrists, we had oncologists, endocrinologists, a rheumatologist, gastroenterologists. That's right. And that was incredibly satisfying because although we are very proud and passionate generalists and you know, as I've stated on many occasions, I I don't think there's ever been a time where we have needed generalism like we need it today. Um, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, well, we just get all these. You know, we are. You know, we are. A, it is a specialism in its own right. You know, it's, it's it's. We see a lot of incredibly complex problems that we have to put together, and we can't move off to a different speciality when it's. You know, we're the ones who when when different specialities can't deal with a problem or say it's not our department, you know, where does it end up? Exactly. You know, <laughs> back, back at back at our door. So it was great to see that the, the breadth of different specialities from, you know, the medical profession who came, but we also had, you know, quite a few nurses there, a few pharmacists. Um, and, you know, interestingly for me, over the last few weeks, I'm getting more and more interest from other allied health professionals saying, can we come? And... You know, we we are, we're having to think about that now, aren't we? As a, as a as a group, as a as a team, we're trying to have to figure out what do we do because the goal initially was for the medical profession, not because we wanted to exclude anyone else, but only because we felt that we've got to start getting doctors educated in this model, right? And let's really focus on what is relevant for those doctors. Um, but where do you see this going? Do you think? Do you think the training is relevant for other allied health professionals? Yes, I mean, I think it's 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 tricky because there are there are so many different worlds, and and you and I both know, and we're very 
non-hierarchical and we don't like labels, do we? Neither of us. We, we like, um, I think that limits people and it limits science and um, it limits being able to get people better because that is the business that we're in. We want people to feel better and we want them to, to live longer and be healthier. And it doesn't really matter what tools are used to achieve that. I remember when I was a GP in Haringey years ago, occasionally I would get letters from uh, a nutritional therapist uh, or a nutritionist and I wouldn't really understand the contents of it. But what I did realise is that the patient, their symptoms had sort of had really improved. And I, I was cynical, you know, I've got to admit, this was maybe 15 years ago and I'd sort of think, well, have you really got better? You know, what, what have they done? How has eating more of this and less of that worked? Um and I, I'm, I'm no nutritionist, by, as you know, but now that I've learned a little bit more about the science behind that and a bit more about the gut, and, and you and I know we had, we had a gastroenterologist who came to our first course, and he put his hand up, you know, when I met him before the course and said, look, to be honest, I don't, I don't really know much about the gut microbiome. I, I just uh, tend to scope people. And that's the problem. Medicine has become siloed off. And I think being more inclusive is is a good thing. I have to also say, I think you and I originally thought that there were a lot of people out there that would know a lot of the content of the course and might might have thought that it might be a bit thin on, say, for example, we're not teaching anyone nutrition or hard nutrition at all, but it's an element of what we do. You've got to know a little bit about well, it. And on that point, I think it's very, very important to to clarify you know, the prescribing lifestyle medicine course that we put mm. on in January and we're running again in April um it's not a nutrition course no right? we're absolutely. not training people to be a nutritionist we're looking at mechanisms and systems and how food can impact those those systems exactly and um you know there is absolutely a need for us as doctors to have the you know the ability to refer on to people with a more in-depth knowledge but it is about changing the way that we think and there's plenty that we can do you know, with some basic nutrition recommendations. There's plenty we can do in general practice, actually. But there's plenty of scope also for specialist nutrition experts to to take over when we have to refer on. I think that's quite an important point to make. Absolutely. And and also health coaches, you know, they're, they're a, a burgeoning, it's a burgeoning field, you know, and they're not talked about enough in this country, I think. They could be really useful in actually delivering uh, the kind of plans that, a practitioner comes up with because one of the problems we have certainly I have in general practice is that the availability to see me is very poor so I can set someone off on the right path but if that person needs a bit of guidance or help or someone to touch base with they need someone with different skills to me and I think I think that's the that's the thing you know it, it doesn't really matter what kind of health practitioner you are like I said before we're all trying to do the same thing we want this pe- person to feel better uh, whether you're a physiotherapist or a health coach or a doctor or a nurse and and so I think actually you know broadening the course uh, is is probably the right thing to do but you know, I, I would agree you know if, as you say all these allied healthcare professionals who are now clamoring to, to be involved and it, I think that just shows that there is a lack of this information out there um, people are not feeling as though they've got enough tools to, to use with their patients, whether you are a doctor, whether you're a nurse. And don't forget, practice nurses see a lot of patients first these days. So they've got a very important role uh, to play. You mentioned health coaches. Literally last week, I was giving a talk and this lady came up to me and 
she said, you know, I, I, I first heard about you in the first series of Doctor in the House and I found it inspiring and I made these changes and that I'm trying to follow on with your book. And then she said to me, I didn't really have an open-minded GP. So I moved practice. And I was wondering where this conversation was going. I said, I've, I've moved to a different practice and the, the GP was fantastic, very open-minded. And the first thing they did was refer me to a health coach who started working at the practice. And I said, was this on the NHS? She goes, yeah, this is part of the National Health Service. I think it was mm. a pilot program. And I just thought it was incredible. And I, as you're saying, health coaches are a very much underutilised resource. You know, it's all very well us starting off the conversation in that 10-minute period. But who's continuing on? Who's going to help those patients sustain that behavioural change long-term? Because ultimately, what we're asking a lot of the time is behaviour change. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, and that's the key, isn't it, to lifestyle medicine? It is about lighting the fire and making that person make that change you know the whole thing is is really about behavior change you, you've hit the nail on the head but I, I also think when when you know and I don't want to go on and on about the whole the course for the whole the whole of this session because it sounds like it's just an advert for it but um, um, you know I, I think we wanted it to be very much focused to NHS frontline staff didn't we and um, I think a lot a lot of our colleagues work in the private sector which is fine you know and I think you know, people who 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 access private services are, are absolutely entitled to do so, and they they pay so through their own money. But I think I think the the focus, the 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 the, the, the elephant in the room, is the fact that the NHS is dying. You know, it's seventy this year, and it's in need of some sort of resuscitation. And I think my passion and your passion is is we wanted to train up as many people as we could in those frontline positions to be able to make change. And there's a massive multiplier effect there. If you think about the number of people, you know, if you take the 200 people that came to that first course and the number of people they might be helping each week since January, that's an enormous yeah. amount of prescriptions that have been avoided, referrals that have been avoided. You know, this is something we need to audit, except you and I are too disorganised to do that. But um, OK, cut that bit. No, but, um, so, um, you know, and but but... There is good work going on here, and I think we need to to really, you know, I'm so passionate about this. I know it works. My colleagues can see that it works. You know, it works. People come back, patients come back going, you know, and, and my colleagues will say, what did you do? And I go, well, I didn't really do very much, but, you know, this is how it works. Yeah. So, so you know, it's time. It, it really is time, and I think you're in your sort of true modest fashion. You're underplaying what you, what you have done, because I've seen you at first, and you are a brilliant clinician, and, you know, you say it's simple, but you know once you really have a a good grasp and a really detailed grasp of the science, it's only then that you can make it simple. So on the outside, yes, it does appear simple, but there really is a lot of complexity behind it. And you know we spent a lot of time, didn't we, trying to come up with a framework that was simple and safe as well, safe, yeah. simple, and because then it's going to be applied in practice mm. there's no point us coming up with this program and this new framework if nobody if everyone found it too complicated to use yeah and i think that's why we're getting such great feedback as people are using this now in real life consultations as you say you know in in our nhs practice we can help 30 40 you know maybe some on busy days 50 patients in one day mm. but by training up all these uh frontline clinicians mm who can then help their patients, we've got the potential there to transform the health of thousands, tens of thousands of people. I think that's our drive. And look, 
we could literally chat about so many different things. Um, <laughs> I see you're wearing that um, uh, IW coffee t-shirt, which we got when we were... Indian Wells Coffee. Indian Wells yeah. Coffee, when we went out a couple of years ago to study with uh, Professor Dale Bredesen, um, you know, one of the probably one of the globe's leading uh, neuroscience researchers who's who's making some really interesting headway into Alzheimer's disease. We could have spent the whole time chatting about that. I think, you know, we ended up focusing on that prescribing lifestyle medicine course because that is here, that is now. Uh, it's running again in April. And, you know, we want to, to teach as many clinicians as possible. So we'll definitely get you back on the podcast soon and, and further on these conversations. I guess my, my final question, uh, which you have not been given a chance to prepare, so I'm putting you on the spot a little bit, is... Go on, give us your best shot. <laughs> <laughs> well, no, really, the, the, the podcast is literally about, you know, I always want to leave people with something to reflect on, you know, in their own lives or something that they can actually put into practice in their own life immediately. And in your vast experience as a practicing clinician, as someone who is in the trenches as an NHS GP, are there some top tips that you would leave the listener with that they can think about changing in their own life because you've seen those same tips change your patients' lives? That's a big question, yeah. And I think um, it's really interesting you say that because next week I'm doing a talk at my son's school about how to keep your child healthy. So I've been thinking about top tips already, but that's very focused towards children. I think I think the main thing is simplifying your life keep you know literally going back to basics in terms of all the things that you do so uh food for example all the things that that you talk about in your book for example about avoiding processed foods you know eating eating real food very very simple thing but actually amazing how many people don't do it and i know it's difficult for a lot of people but you know you can you can buy frozen broccoli for one pound at our local freezer shop um it doesn't have to be expensive and you you can just stick it in a pan and boil it up most people can do that and it's just you know the reason i mentioned that is that once you explain what broccoli does to your aryl hydrocarbon receptor in your gut and why it's so good for you patients buy into that and they think wait a second you know i think i might eat broccoli it's quite nice actually you know and that that type of thing so sim- re- keeping things simple in terms of eating real food is one um trying to mimic nature as well you know this thing about artificial light you know at the moment we're in sort of an artificially lit room you know, podcast uh, studio. A classic sort of broadcast environment you know and, and 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 all the things about not overstimulating your brain when you're meant to be switching off which means that your sleep will improve you know thinking of yourself really as a machine we, we spend more time making lists of, of what we're gonna i don't know do for the next month or, or, or you know a shopping list than we do thinking about our own health and just just sort of you know taking a step back and simplifying everything in your life so eating real food resting when you have to um and taking the opportunity to get things in that are very necessary a bit like brushing your teeth you know everyone does that twice a day so patients of mine, for example, who say, they oh, I don't get time to go to the gym. Well, you don't have to go to the gym, you know. So I actually got, for example, I got here early today and I thought, what can I do that's sort of useful but also pleasurable? So I walked all the way from St Pancras because I thought, why not? You know, it's a nice day, it's not raining. And then I walked quite briskly. So I've got my kind of exercise in for that. That's great, you know, and it's that sort of thing. So simplifying things and, and going on from going back to basics, I think, 
I'm just going to take one example that's very topical at the moment. So diabetes and low-carb diets, I mean, it's everywhere, isn't it? It's in all the papers and stuff. I've got with me, actually, I thought of you, Rongan, when I, when I brought this in today, this book. It's called The Household Doctor. Uh, so a lot of people, a lot of my friends, including yourself, will know that I collect a lot of antique medical books or old medical books because I find them fascinating because it tells the story of how medicine has evolved for me really really interesting so this is one of my favorites it's called the household doctor so exactly what you were doing on tv doctor in the house by s king hutton and the first imprint of this was from 1938 so I'm going to actually read from this this is how awesome this is so look this is a, a little bit it says here some pages on illness and this is the segment on diabetes So it says, the treatment is twofold. So I'm reading directly from the text in this book now. Dietetic. Since diabetes depends on too great a quantity of sugar in the blood, the rational treatment is to withdraw or reduce the intake of sugar-producing foods. These are sugar itself and all sweetened things and all starchy foods such as rice, tapioca, sago, bread and cakes. Eggs, salads and green vegetables may be taken. Also, bacon, cheese, fish, meat. I mean, that is a low-carb diet from 1938, isn't it? I mean, that is is pretty much the kind of sheet that my patients get if they're pre-diabetic or diabetic because we know low-carb diets work. And it's obviously a part of the treatment in type 2 diabetes. It's not the whole thing. And you need to sort of work on stress and exercise and other other factors. But how amazing is that? Yeah, incredible to know. I mean, just just to sort of clarify, we're talking here about type 2 diabetes. Um, But just to know that that was written in the 1930s it it really just goes to show that very little of what we're doing is new that's right (laughs) what what is new i think is the fact that there is now a lot more science to back up you know these these old school recommendations and you know i particularly think about you know traditional chinese medicine and ancient sort of ayurvedic medicine and how they always thought that the body works different organs works better at different times of the day and now we're having a whole load of new science showing us that is absolutely the case exactly um so i think it's it's quite humbling isn't it to know that actually this people were writing about this in the 1930s um and look and i just want to thank you for your time we could have gone into a whole host of different things today um and no doubt we will do very soon on the podcast but you're a busy nhs gp today was a, a morning off where you know, arguably you should have been resting and recuperating from the stresses of the week, but you, well, I dragged you into London to, to have a chat about things. So thank you very much for your time and I hope we get you back on the podcast very soon. Thanks, Rongan. It's been an absolute pleasure. That's the end of this week's Feel Better, Live More podcast. Thank you so much for listening and I really hope you found the conversation useful, but also enjoyable. If you're not already, I'd highly recommend that you subscribe to this podcast so that you can be notified when the latest episode of my podcast comes out. I'd also be incredibly grateful if you consider going onto iTunes and giving this a five-star rating so that I can get this information out and reach more people. It really does make a difference. And if you have any suggestions for people you'd like to see me have conversations with on this podcast, I'd encourage you to get in touch with me on social media using the hashtag #FeelBetterLiveMore. You can find me on Facebook and Instagram using the handle at Dr Chatterjee and on Twitter using the handle at Dr Chatterjee UK.